Hello, everyone, and welcome, finally, to a new episode of Life After Midnight, Strange History, Salem Style. As always, I am Kristen, and it is good to be back. I have been on a little bit of a hiatus, uh, as you probably can tell. I had been promising you all a New Orleans episode for quite a while. I went there in November with my husband, and I did record in the haunted French Quarter Hotel that we were staying in. However, I lost all of the audio from said recording. Little did I know that the apparent whatever Wi-Fi was in that hotel messed with whatever I was doing. I lost everything. Um, and it's been a while for me to sort of collect all of my information back together, uh, rewrite it, and then re-record it uh, because I had to rewrite for not actually recording in the hotel. So I'm a little bummed that you are not getting an episode that was recorded in the hotel but recorded after the fact. But here it is, better late than never. I've been pretty busy. Um, as you all probably know, and if you listen to my episodes before, you know that I for my day job, am a historical reenactor and actor at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum. So let me just give you a quick timeline of all of the crap that came tumbling at me after I got home in November. So I got home, obviously, right after that, uh, I was gearing up at work and everyone was gearing up really for the reenactment, the annual reenactment of the Boston Tea Party, which we do every year on December the 16th. So I was learning my role for that. It was really awesome. I got to play Margaret Draper, who was a loyalist and worked for a loyalist newspaper here in New England. So again, getting to play a real life person uh, discussing the meeting in Old South Meeting House while all the men are in there arguing and shouting. Um, little do they know that the ladies are outside almost fighting each other. I'm looking at you, Sally Hughes. Uh, but anyway, so I've been doing that. And then, of course, be right before that was Harpoon Tavern Night, which is another thing we do every year to sort of kick off the hype leading up to the Tea Party reenactment. Um, and then, of course, I went home for the holidays to Pennsylvania. I got to go to the Museum of the American Revolution and, you know, look at all of that stuff. So that was really awesome. And then... After that, just more and more things happened at the museum. Come January, come February, I'm learning new education scripts and everything like that. We have education programs um, at the museum. So everything just got super busy with that. And I uh, was also planning some events. Um, not really planning events, but planning to be a part of them. I should say the credit for planning the events goes to Funded Publications. Uh, I have been working with them. I'm sure you've been following it if you follow me on social media. And I got to interview two of their authors for their anthologies uh, that are also authors in other sorts of projects of R.C. Mulher and Nancy Bruca clark um, I got to interview both of them in a live interview in the Witch House for their event that they hosted for Women in Horror Month. So if you tuned into my Facebook, you were lucky enough to see those. If you haven't, they're on the Facebook. Go find them. Uh, so obviously Women in Horror Month is in February, and it was their second annual Write Like a Girl event where they host women horror writers to read their stories in the Witch House. So that is where I was then. And then after that, we, well, I uh, was graciously asked to partner with them on um, the Daughters of Darkness event, which was the first of its kind, which was a night market that Funded and Amber, mainly from Funded Publications, um, put together and hosted in the Witch House. So this was a night market. It was all women, again, with the theme of Women in Horror Month who were vendors, entrepreneurs, artists, writers. So that is where I fall in. I'm a historian and writer, uh, I guess entrepreneur also, as I'm doing this podcast. But 
you know, if you know anything about my setup, you will know that it's me in my apartment huddled in my room with my cats. So this is not a fancy operation by any means. Um, so anyway, uh, I got to do that and I sort of sat at the entrance of the witch house and offered some history for people as they came in the house. It was a huge success. Uh, if any of you are listeners and you attended Daughters of Darkness at the Witch House in Salem, you will know that we had an hour wait to get in the house all the way until 8.30 at night. So this was a huge event. It was all um, gothic women vendors who were vending dark items, witchy items, what have you. Um, I got some awesome soap from Ghoulish Delights that I'm super jazzed about, in particular because this is the New Orleans episode, because it's called Breakfast with Witches. It's inspired by American Horror Story Coven, which I love, and it smells of beignets, whipped cream, and pancakes, and it is the goddamn greatest. Um, If you are looking for more things by Ghoulish Delights and you like spooky bath products like I do, uh, they also have one that I almost bought um, that was uh, called Dirty Pillows in reference to Carrie. And the scent on that one was dried corsage, I believe, uh, or yeah, bloodied corsage and telekinesis. So those are the types of products that were purveyed at the dark market. You missed out if you didn't go. Um, We were able to get through everyone, thank God, and it really was popular. So hopefully we can do it again next year. I had a great time. I met some awesome people from the area. So if any of you are listening and we had discussions, thank you. I had a great time with you all. Um, But we should get on to the episode. So um, let's talk about that. So this is sort of my what I'm calling... Um, the Ghosts of New Orleans figurative and literal uh, episode. So this is my travels while I was in New Orleans, and it's just a hit on some of the places I visited and why they are important to me and why I think they sort of best represent New Orleans' reputation as a city of the dead. That is something you always hear in reference to, to the graveyards there, the above-the-ground cemeteries, um, all of the tombs that line those above-the-ground cemeteries, which there have been huge preservation efforts for those so that they can remain open. Uh, Thank goodness there was a group of advocacy there that that got that together so that they are not demolished or taken down. But I feel that the term city of the dead is something that applies not just literally to the cemeteries, but to many, many parts of culture, past histories, and people that lived in New Orleans and that still live in New Orleans. When you see city of the dead... It's not so much that it is in reference to the cemeteries to me, but in reference to how New Orleans thinks about itself and to the culture of New Orleans, uh, both past and present. So I wanted to really explore some things that I hadn't seen before when I went this time. I have been to New Orleans before. The first time I got there was for a conference. I presented my thesis on ghost adventures and the paranormal as a use for modes of public history in 2015 at the Popular Culture Association's National Conference, which was held in New Orleans. So this time when I went back, I kind of wanted to go just for me so that I was not rushing around going to conference panels and presenting my work and being stressed out. Um, The last time I was in New Orleans, I had a panic attack in the hotel room because my stuff was, you know, not together in the way I wanted it to. Uh, If you know anything about me, know that I am a perfectionist. I will not put out material until I'm absolutely sure that it is perfect and until I am satisfied with it. So that is one of the reasons why you had to wait so long for this episode, so I do apologize. 
but I wanted to sort of see what makes New Orleans tick and on all of my ideas about New Orleans versus, you know, what I could actually experience myself. So there are tons of haunted places in New Orleans. There's tons of history. I could read a bunch of books. I could tell you stories I learned from guides. Um, but I will tell you before we launch into this that I like to talk about things that I have personally seen or studied. So some of the references that I will make in this episode are direct quotes from people that I met there and information that I gleaned from people that I have met there. But nothing in this episode is going to be something that I have not double-checked myself on multiple fronts. So you will never hear me present something in an episode that I have not at least confirmed is a is in fact a local legend or is in fact a fact a historical fact um so I'm very thorough in that luckily so it's one thing to just regurgitate information from books um but everywhere I mention in the episode will be places that I have physically been in New Orleans um I will throw in uh, research that I've learned about these places as well um to get my facts straight of course but Getting to go to New Orleans simply to study for this podcast and simply to learn for this podcast and record things for this podcast was kind of a big deal to me. I have to let you all know uh, because I am not somebody (laughs) who makes a lot of money. Let me just put it out there. And I'm sure that there's a lot of you living in this world right now that are, you know, in the same boat as me. Um, I'm in the business of history and education. And while those are fulfilling and they are my love and my life's work. Uh, you know, we don't make a lot. Um, the humanities are something that are sorely, you know, underrepre- not underrepresented, but undervalued in this society as of late. I feel I've been feeling that a lot more. Luckily, I do work for a place that actually cares about its employees and cares about its mission. Um, and I feel very lucky for that. But it's it's a little hard to not, you know, be able to just throw down money and travel wherever I want to. You know, I don't have the privilege to just flit off to God knows where. Um, and not a whole lot of people are able to do that. And that's the reality. So I just want you all to know, um, that this is, this means a lot to me to be able to tell you about my experiences on a trip that I actually took. And I would love to travel the world and do this all the time. Maybe I will get to someday, but right now that's just not a realism for a majority of people in the world. Um, so everything that you get from me in, in this episode and further episodes, as I embark on sort of a new leaf for life after midnight is through a whole lot of hard work, perseverance. I love what I do. I love to travel. I love to research and I love being able to afford it. So that being said, um, I do want to take a moment before I launch into my info about New Orleans to just thank each and every one of you um, who listen to this podcast, to take the time out of your day to listen to what I'm saying to you. Um, I love doing this. I'm very humbled that I actually got to go to New Orleans and record an episode because this little podcast is a dream of mine that's sort of coming to life. Um, And to be able to share it with everyone who isn't able to travel or maybe isn't able to go do those things means a lot to me. Um, And I want you all to know that. So sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you. And no matter how surface that may seem, I want you to know that I I am truly thankful and I'm truly blown away every time I talk to somebody who appreciates what I do and who wants more of it and who is excited for it as I am and who is passionate about it as I am. So thank you. Uh, So when I went to New Orleans, uh, let's get back to New Orleans instead of me, you know, having a sad sap moment at you. 
I did all the touristy things. I ate beignets at Cafe du Monde. Um, we had dinner at Muriel's in Jackson Square on our first night, which is a restaurant uh, that is reported to be haunted. I will get to that later. Uh, we took a paddle boat wheel ride to Shalmet Battlefield, which was the main staging area for the Battle of New Orleans from December 14th, 1814 to January 8th, 1815. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, we did a lot of shopping, a lot of eating, a lot of drinking, as you can imagine when going to New Orleans. Uh, so why don't we start off there? Because as we all know, every good New Orleans story starts with drinking. And so does the first story that I have for you. So I was there with my husband because we both love New Orleans. And I, I have to tell you that walking around the French Quarter, I was just reminded again this time when we went that this is the only other place that I would live besides New England, besides Salem specifically. There's just an ease of pace down in New Orleans that really lives up to the hype about that laissez-faire attitude. And the people really do reflect that. The only rude people that you will run into in New Orleans are other tourists. And that is the God's honest truth. Um, I love Salem, don't get me wrong, but both times I have been to New Orleans, I have felt such a strong connection to that place that I've honestly considered uprooting myself and just shipping down uh, more than once, and my husband has too. Um, there's something about, as a historian, being in a place where all the darker and grittier parts of our history, of how America was created largely on the backs of enslaved people and colonization, that stays with you when you are in New Orleans. It is a place where you see all parts of those history in Almost every century, you see that history and you see this place being forced to contend with that darkness. Um, and it is tangible, it's touchable, it's unforgiving. And that is exactly what I love about New Orleans. Um, and of course, I love it because of its haunted history. So New Orleans, as I said before, has many times been referred to as a city of the dead, where the spirits of our ancestors walk and talk and sometimes aren't really dead. So whether you're a fan of the vampire lore of Anne Rice or you're just here to see if the dead do indeed walk in New Orleans, uh, New Orleans gets in you. Uh, it definitely gets a hold of you and it doesn't let go. Whenever I talk about New Orleans, I feel that pull and I've met many others who feel it too. Author Grace King hit it on the head the best when she said, We wander through old streets and pause before the age-stricken houses, and strange to say, the magic past lights them up. And there is a magical aura surrounding the city of New Orleans. It's pervasive. It's in every sight, every sound, smell, taste that assails your senses. It would seem that the city of the dead is a feast of excess for the living, but it's not just that. It's the culture and the history and all the things that make New Orleans, New Orleans. And some of my favorite stories, um, I realize that this covers like 1% of the stories that I can tell. And trust me, there will be more. But like I said, I'm going to focus on the places that I visited on this trip in particular. On that note, uh, my husband and I, on our first night there, as I said, ate at Muriel's in Jackson Square. It's the quintessential tourist dinner place that, in my opinion, is totally worth the hype. Uh, I have to say it is some of the best French Creole food you will have here, uh, or at least some of the best that I have had in my experience. I by no means have 
anywhere near the experience with French Creole food that I should have or that people who live there have. But the times that I've been there, listen, I guys, I love to eat. If there is one thing you should know about me, I love food and I love trying different kinds of food. So both times I have been in New Orleans, I have eaten more than any human being probably should in one week. Um, so... It does have, Muriel's does have my favorite cocktail so far, which is called the Honey Child. It's a blackberry and basil shrub martini. So yes, love it. But like I said, every good New Orleans story starts with a good cocktail. Muriel's is also known for being haunted by the ghost of a man named Père Antony Leparde Jordan. Yes, that is a mouthful, but locals and tour guides refer to this person simply as Père Antony. So I don't know if that's a nickname or whatever, but Père Antony we will refer to him as. The history of the house that became the restaurant starts a bit before Pierre Antony. The hand, uh, the land changed hands several times over New Orleans history, but around 1745, as Jackson Square was rising in the new layout of the French Quarter, Jean-Baptiste Destrahan, a man of great wealth, according to sources, considered to be the royal treasurer of French Louisiana colonies, acquired the property, tore down the small cottage that had been there, and built an elaborate home for his family. The home passed to his son in 1765, but the family ran out of money and was forced to auction the home. In 1776, the grand home was purchased by a man named Pierre-Philippe de Marigny to use as a city home when he came into town from his plantation on the outskirts of town, which is the area today known as Falberg Marigny. Really awesome neighborhood. It was fairly common, given the pace of high-class social life and French Creole culture, for families to do this so that they could keep up social circles and status. However, tragedy soon struck Marigny, and on March 21st, 1788, the Great New Orleans Fire started on Good Friday, and it burned 856 of the 1,100 structures in the French Quarter, including the city's main church, the original Cabildo building, the municipal building, the army barracks, armory, and jail. In its path stood the grand mansion now owned by Pierre-Philippe de Marigny. Part of the mansion was burnt, but during the next decade, as New Orleans was starting to rebuild and trying to recover, the Spanish started to replace buildings with thick brick wall buildings, and some familiar buildings to those of you that have been here were also built that are still here today, including the St. Louis Cathedral and the Cabildo Part Two, the Presbytere and a piece of property Mr. Perry Antony Lepardi Jordan purchased from Marigny. I'm still trying to get that name down. I have to remember just to call him Perry Antony, guys. So Pierre Antony built his dream home there, and he restored it to its original glory and grandeur for himself and his family. And according to all accounts, it was an incredibly lavish and decorated home that Pierre loved very much. However, he was also known to entertain in the house and known for his love of gambling. So apparently in 1814, this habit got so bad that he wagered the house in a poker game and lost. <laughs> the shock and despair at losing the one thing he loved the most was too much. And before having to leave his home, Perry made the decision to stay there forever. He committed suicide on the second floor in the area that served as the slave quarters. Ever since Muriel's has occupied the building as a restaurant, reports of strange activity have been numerous. Folks at Muriel's, according to their website, have seen and felt the presence of who they believe to be Perry Antony. They do also say that it could be any number of previous occupants, but given the tragic nature of Perry Antony's death and the sort of stigma surrounding death in Southern culture and mourning in Southern culture, they believe it to be Perry Antony. They do also say that it could uh, be any number of those occupants, but they have a pretty good hunch. 
They say that this entity appears not in human form, but as a glimmer of sparkly light wandering around their seance lounge area on the second floor. They are named the seance lounges because this is where it's believed Perry Anthony spent most of his time and still spends it, and it's also where he died. Patrons and employees of Muriel's have also witnessed objects being moved around through the restaurant. They actually still set a table for Perry Anthony with an offering of bread and wine because they believe he's still wandering around the home that he so loved in life. And if you ask nicely, I did the first time I came here, uh, they will take you to the back to see the table, pending that the courtyard space isn't being used for private party. Um, unfortunately, the second time I went, it was not open. So if I can dig out an old picture, if anyone has a picture of Perry Antony's table, um, post it in the comment section when I post this on Facebook so that everyone can see Perry Antony's table, just in case I can't find my own picture, because it's been a while. Um, so... The first time, obviously, I got to go there. Second time, I didn't. Um, it would seem, however, that Perry Anthony gets a little bit angsty now and then because since March of 2001, glasses have been known to actually fly from the bar 12 feet across to the brick wall and shatter. And this is apparently why the staff chose to start setting a place for Perry Anthony, thinking that maybe he would stop venting his eternal frustration on the staff and their drinkware. It is said that if the table is ever not set, the breakage activity swirls back up. So Muriel's has had paranormal investigators through the place who claim they've heard knocks on the brick wall, recorded a female voice, uh, possibly another previous occupant, and seen inexplicable, inexplicable strange shadows. And most of that activity seems to center around the seance lounges on the second floor. But according to waitstaff at Muriel's, the ghosts are mostly harmless and sometimes just very entertaining. So you can pop in and dine with some real remnants of New Orleans history and pay some respects to Perry Anthony if you are ever finding yourself in the French Quarter. So, of course, after our dinner, the journey continued. It's the first night in New Orleans. I'm not going to bed yet. So we ended up at another tourist favorite. And we're tourists, so we like it. Um, Lafitte's Black Shop. Uh, Blacksmith Shop, sorry. I have to tell you that they, in my opinion, have the best hurricanes in New Orleans. Or at least I thought they did. But Pat O'Brien's hurricanes are growing on me. And that is apparently where the hurricane was invented. I didn't like it the first time I went because it's really, really sweet. But uh, I do like the hurricanes at Lafitte's. So I think they are the best, but it, Pat O'Brien's is definitely becoming a contender with me. Um, so I think it may have been unseated, though, by a drink that was made for me by Judah, who was our waiter at Coop's Place on Decatur Street. So Coop's Place was something that was suggested um, by a friend of mine. And if anyone has kids, earmuffs, because the drink that Judah makes at Coop's Place is called the Fruity Fucker. And according to his description... Um, it's a whole lot of tropical shit and a whole lot of rum, which was Judah's description of this drink. And the only reason I mention it is because Coop's Place is this little hole-in-the-wall, unassuming place that has the best damn gumbo and red beans and rice that I have had in my entire life. So locals as well as tourists go to this place. I can see why. Uh, but when I first walked in, I ordered a hurricane, which is why this story is relevant since we're talking about Lafitte's and hurricanes. And Judah's reply was... No, you get that shit on Bourbon Street. Let me make you this drink. And you know what? It was an awesome drink. I also took his food suggestion, which was amazing too. So it goes to show you, listen to the people that are there. They might not be as gruff as Judah, but I appreciated his gruffness and I appreciated my food and drink. Um, so when I told Judah that I thought Coop's Place might be my new favorite French Quarter spot too, my French Quarter Cajun spot, he told me that the same thing happened to him when he first came there and now he works there. 
so Lookout World, I may end up there slinging fruity fuckers for a living because Coop's Place knows their food and drink. Um, so thanks, Judah, for setting me straight. Anyway, since I've gone on to another tangent, as I often do, uh, back to Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop. It's an old-ass bar in a cool-ass building. Those are two things that I love. Old-ass bars and cool-ass buildings. When the two are combined, heaven. So it's dark, it's mysterious, it's divey, it's glorious. I love their hurricanes. And after Muriel's, we went over there, since both of these places are literally a five-minute walk from the hotel we stayed in, which was the La Rouchelieu Hotel in the French Quarter on Chartres Street. Uh, We've been traveling since 12 p.m., so I didn't want to go very far. And it is another haunted locale here in NOLA. So let's uh, talk about the history of Lafitte's, where it got its name, where the ghosts are purported to come from, and what's wrong about many assumptions about Lafitte's. So that's another thing you guys know that I love is debunking mysteries, because the real history is always, almost always as disturbing and definitely cooler. So supposedly, Lafitte's blacksmith shop gets its name from the famed pirate Jean Lafitte, who was said to have owned the property. In fact, there is no record of that. I talked to somebody at the National Park site that is in the middle of the French Quarter, and they directed me to a literal panel that's installed at the visitor center debunking it as false, because it is. So I'll say this now, and I'll probably say it again. If you need some shit debunked and some inaccurate history corrected that you can't uh, find, talk to National Park Service rangers. They know their stuff and they are some of the best historians out there and they make it their mission to tell you the real history um they will never tell you something that they have not either found themselves or has not been documented so i love my national park rangers lots and lots of love for the national park service um so there's that so while there is no actual record of lafitte living in the building it's largely believed that to hide his illegal activities he used the blacksmith shop as a front to run his smuggling operation out of For those of you who have never heard of Jean Lafitte, he was a French pirate and privateer operating in the Gulf of Mexico in the early 19th century. So now you can start to see the cracks in this being his blacksmith shop. It was built much, much earlier than the 19th century. Uh, He and his brother Pierre were believed to have been born in either Basque, France or the French colony of Saint-Domingue. So, by 1805, he operated a warehouse to help disperse goods smuggled in large part by his brother Pierre, but they were forced to move their operation out of New Orleans to an island in Barataria Bay after the U.S. government passed the Embargo Act of 1807. By 1810, their new port was very successful, as was their smuggling business. So they started to engage in piracy. After many years of this, the Lafitte's were given a warning that the U.S. military was going to come in and stop the party, but they didn't listen. And in 1814, the Navy force sent in um, successfully invaded and captured most of Lafitte's fleet. Uh, Later on, because the U.S. loves to use whoever it can for military campaign and expansion of interests, Lafitte and his smugglers were offered a legal pardon for helping Andrew Jackson defend New Orleans against the British in the final battle of the War of 1812. Lafitte and his brother later moved to the area of Galveston Island in Texas, where they formed a pirate colony called Campeche. They continued to attack merchant ships there and all around Central American ports until his death in 1823 while trying to capture Spanish vessels. The building is that is Lafitte's blacksmith shop bar today is in fact the oldest bar in the U.S. It dates back to the 1720s, which is why I say that assumption that, Perry, that uh, Jean Lafitte might have owned that building is null and void immediately because it was dates back to the 1720s. And it actually has the distinction, we know that it is 
that old because it has the distinction of being one of the few remaining original French-built structures in New Orleans after the Great Fire of 1788. And a smaller fire in 1794 destroyed the vast majority of those French-built structure buildings. So it's also said to host a few ghosts, one of them believed to be Jean Lafitte himself. Uh, My husband and I sat at a table in the center of the bar in front of the fireplace, which is believed to be the heart of the activity in Lafitte's. People report an unsavory feeling and unwholesome aura in the area surrounding the fireplace, according to author Michael Murphy in his book Feared At, which gives a quick overview of some haunted locales within the Crescent City. Uh, Michael has also written other books called, uh, I think it's Eat That, Hear That, and something else. So this guy is an all-around sort of connoisseur of all things New Orleans and has a great love for it. He's written uh, quite a few books and has quite quite a lot of acclaim in New Orleans. So... Um, apparently I love all things unsavory and unwholesome because whenever there's a word like that attached to a location that I end up going to, I go there. I don't know why, but yes, Lafitte's unsavory, unwholesome, and my cup of tea, apparently. So people feel cold spots near the fireplace. They report being touched by a cold hand only to turn and find no one is there. And both staff and patrons have reported seeing glowing red eyes staring at them from the dark corners around the fireplace. We had no such experience that night, but it has been heavily documented by many people. Apparently, the entity of John Lafitte himself has been seen in the upstairs ladies' restroom. That could have just been the hurricanes or drunk tourists dressed as pirates because I've experienced those hurricanes and I've seen weirdos dressed as pirates. And believe me, it's highly plausible. If it's highly plausible in Salem, it's probably highly plausible in New Orleans. However, women have reported hearing footsteps while they are in the bathroom alone peals of laughter and sighing from empty stalls when they are the only ones in the bathroom. So creeper pirate ghosts, welcome to New Orleans. Uh, I had no paranormal experiences while I was there and I definitely wasn't as drunk as the other patrons in Lafitte's on a Friday night, but I did have a little bit of a special experience. So there's apparently a little tradition, as we noticed while we were sitting there, um, of some socially acceptable public defacement at Lafitte's. And before all my history nerds have that sharp intake of breath and immediate kill mode, it's on the very modern tables, not the bricks or original beams of the building. Those are still very much intact. Um, So people carve names and messages of where they're from on the tables, and we kind of thought that was really cool. So we decided to do it too, because why not? Um, So my husband carved a sweet little message, Kristen and Scott, till death do us part, and topped it off with a little mini death's head to make it properly New England. And it was so cute and aww. But as I sat there, I thought, wow, this is something so stupid, but it's something that's going to stay in this place we love, and it'll be our little Salem mark on New Orleans. So fast forward a bit, and uh, Scott and I were talking about how I had wanted to get a tattoo at Electric Ladyland on Frenchman Street last time I was here. And I didn't really have time, preparation, funds, so I passed it up. I didn't know what I wanted, and I just didn't really have the time to think about it. So Scott and I were wanting to get match a matching tattoo for a few years now. So it suddenly dawned on me, I love this stupid little drawing you did. <laughs> and it's about time that we permanently stamped ourselves with 18th century grave art, because duh. Uh, so how about we get this awesome individual tattoo with a cool story and make it a combo of Salem and New Orleans? So the next day we got up. 
We trucked over to Electric Ladyland and described it to the artists who all loved it, um, made our shitty little drawing look a little cleaner, and now we have that little death's head from Lafitte's Forever with Nola in the wings. It's our perfect little combination of two of our cities that we love with a cool story. It's perfect. Um, we love them. Huge thanks to Scott and Mark at Electric Ladyland for tattooing us in tandem and not thinking we're weird. Uh, it was really funny, too, because Scott, who tattooed me, has the same name as my husband, and he told me that his girlfriend's name is Kristen. We had a laugh. It was real cute. And I got a cool tattoo. Uh, so even though we had no experiences with the haunts at Lafitte's, we'll have a little piece of it to stay with us in a way forever. Um, so after our traditional first night in New Orleans out tasting the local libations, next day was for history. So we planned to visit two plantations. They're about an hour and a half outside of New Orleans. Uh, first, we went to Whitney Plantation. Now, I've always wanted to go to two plantations, and there's so many to see in New Orleans, so we just had to choose two because we didn't have a car. Uh, there was really no means of getting out there, so we chose one of the packages with a bus ride that would actually take us out there so we could make it there. And we chose a package of uh, Whitney Plantation and Oak Alley Plantation. We went to Whitney Plantation first, or as the tour guides call it, Habitation Heidel which was the name of the first family who owned the property. It began as a property in 1750 with the Heidel family and ended as a plantation with the Whitney family in 1860. It's located on the west bank of the Mississippi River on the historic River Road in St. John the Baptist Parish between Edgard and Wallace, Louisiana. They had probably the best book section on enslavement and black history with a focus on the South that I've ever seen. So Scott and I did have to control ourselves a bit because we didn't bring enough bags to hold all of the books and sources that we wanted. Um, our tour guide we met was named Yvonne, and she led us outside and started the tour simply by stating the name of the families who owned the property, when they owned them, and how long they did. And... She was very just direct and very chip in the way she said it. And, and I was like, wow, I appreciate her conciseness. This is awesome. But then she said something that immediately let me know I made the right choice of which of these sites to visit. When she said, this tour is not about the white people who own this property. This tour is about those who were enslaved here against their will and their daily experiences as enslaved people. And I will never forget her words when she said that. Um, Louisiana, like most of the Deep South, is riddled with the scars of the evil empire of slavery. And at Whitney Plantation, they do their absolute best to cut no corners, leave no stone unturned as you are taken throughout the property, which is a place of absolute unimaginable beauty that was fueled by unimaginable atrocity and pain. Yvonne led us into a small church, which is the Antioch Baptist Church, formerly referred to by the people who went there as the Antioch Baptist Church. Um, it changed its name later on when it became a congregation. And it was one of the first black churches built in the area in Paulina, Louisiana, shortly after the Civil War. It remained the only black church in the area for many, many years. When the church relocated to a new modern building in 1999, so the original congregation for the Antioch Baptist Church is still in operation to this day, which is amazing. Um, the building was eventually brought to the Whitney Plantation historical site to be preserved when Whitney opened. Uh, so when you walk in the room, the first thing you see is that it's a large, light-filled, sunny church, and you see statues of black children. These statues represent all of the enslaved people that took a part in the federal project to record the accounts of those still living who remembered the horrors of slavery. 
According to the Whitney Plantation's official write-up, in the 1930s, President Franklin Roosevelt created the Works Projects Administration, or excuse me, the Works Progress Administration, as a network of hundreds of agencies designed to put the work of to put to work the millions of Americans who had just lost their jobs in the Great Depression. One of these agencies was is, was the Federal Writers Project, the FWP. Led by noted folklorist John A. Lomax, the FWP was sent across the country to record the histories and experiences of everyday Americans. In 1936, the Federal Writers Project had an active African-American unit who took it upon themselves to interview former slaves. John Lomax and his associate director, Sterling A. Brown, immediately realized that the importance of preserving the story of slavery as expressed by its survivors. The formal collection of slave narratives ended in the spring of 1939, except in Louisiana, where most of the oral stories were collected in 1940. At that time, 75 years had passed since the end of the Civil War. The majority of the former slaves that the FWP interviewed were children at the time of emancipation. For the most part, their stories recall their time spent in slavery as children and teenagers. The Children of Whitney, a series of sculptures by Ohio-based artist Woodrow Nash, represent these former slaves as they were at the time of emancipation. Children. Whitney presents the stories of these children as told in their own words. The visitors are introduced to the lives of the enslaved workers based on the recollections of those who endured and who shared the stories of their lives as children in slavery. Born in the late 1940s in Akron, Ohio, Woodrow Nash, who is the artist who designed these sculptures, um and had a consuming passion, apparently, to elevate the human spirit, uh, takes the form of his clay sculptures. So through his pieces, Nash achieves his goal of integrating expression, complex symbolism, and sophisticated aesthetic yield striking embodiments of the human soul, which is his self-described work that Whitney Plantation uses in their, in their literature. When approached while hardworking on uh, one of the children of Whitney, Nash said, We are both detail-oriented people, and we want these pieces to be as genuine to true slave life as possible. This project has been a challenge that I've looked forward to for a long time. My pieces will breathe life into the whole plantation. And he was right. Boy, was he right. Um, As you walk around those grounds and you see the monuments containing the stories of these people from the Federal Writers Project, um of these child people who were children who were slaves as children enslaved people as children um speaking about their existence as wh- at Whitney you feel the presence of those people and that space as you work your way through the slave cabins you're given that harsh view and you're given a harsh view of a rusted set of cells which sits in the middle of the area that opens up to where the slave cabins are and they were used probably, according to Yvonne, as pens to hold enslaved people before they were put up for auction. So it's possible that they were at the New Orleans auction grounds, which were some of the most brutal and exacting um, grounds who sold people during auctions during the time of enslavement. But she made sure to tell us that um, they were made in Pennsylvania. So it's Whitney's reminder to all those who wish to study slavery in the South that the North, and especially Northern industries, were complicit in the great evil that Northerners to this day see as removed from themselves. As a Massachusetts resident, I'm very lucky that most of the people around me are aware of this connection and complicity, especially my husband, who until recently worked at the Lowell National Historic Site as a museum educator and um, talked about the connection daily with school groups. Um, However, I am also very aware that there are still people in this area and many places that like to dub themselves, quote unquote, the North, 
who still push that false narrative. Luckily, I live close to a city like Boston, whose historic sites continue to actively work against that. Whitney was the experience of a lifetime, and one that I will definitely carry with me. As far as ghosts, Whitney is definitely marked land. Uh, And I'm sure that there are energies there that will always linger. I know I felt them. I was very reluctant to even speak. I was just listening to Yvonne, and I felt that this was a place where I should just listen and look and reflect, and Whitney very much lends itself to that. In fact, when you go from place to place, there are bells put throughout the property that were meant to signal shift changes or to call back enslaved people from their work, and they are rung now as you walk by. You are supposed to ring the bell in memorial of those enslaved people. So it's really surreal to be on that property and just walking through and just hear the random tolling of the bells as people are ringing it for these people. So those energies definitely are still there. Um, But there is a time and a place, I feel, to ask about hauntings and sightings, and I felt that this was neither the time or the place, so I did not ask. Whenever I think that engaging in an argument about or discussion about these parts of history is just not worth it or that the person just won't listen, and I know many of us have probably dealt with this over the past year with friends and family, some people who are, you know, people of color and, you know, other people in society have dealt with this their whole lives. Um, Ever since visiting Whitney, however, I've made a personal vow to myself to remember Whitney to remember that real tangible history that is there and to, and to not back down and to have these difficult discussions because these conversations and this education are important and, in my opinion, more important than, to use Yvonne's words, the white people who own the property. So our next stop after Whitney was the Oak Alley Plantation, also on River Road. It's maybe 15, 20 minutes away. It's a long-ass road, I found out. Um, it is a bit surreal, I'm still torn on this visit because there is a huge pop culture geek in me that loved being in the place that was used in so many iconic films and music videos, etc. But there was also that reminder of what the place was. Oak Alley does its part to maintain its history and does a fantastic job representing both its history of slavery and the history of the family who owned the property while it was an operating plantation. I would be lying if I didn't say that their preservation of the house and grounds was not spectacular. Um, The Oak Alley Foundation even began an effort to better interpret the lives of the enslaved people on the property in 2011, which they have presented as a digital collections project called the Oak Alley Slave Database, which is commendable, though I do feel that the name could use some work as is probably obvious. Um, But as I stared out at the famous Oak Tree Alley, which is lined with 28 ancient oak trees that date to the 18th century, it was just before sunset, I looked at the list that our tour guide handed us, who was decked out in Southern Belle attire, and listed were the various famous captures of the Oak Alley Plantation, from Interview with the Vampire in 1993, to an episode of Knight Rider in 1978, to Beyonce and Jay-Z's music video for Deja Vu in 2006, Ghost Hunters in 2008, Django Unchained in 2012, more, more, more. There were so many more. Um, Oak Alley takes pride in this beautiful landscape that they are able to authorize to offer both to everyday tour guests and to prospective brides. And they should be proud of their immense preservation work and the work of their patrons, Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Stewart, who furnished the Great House with period furnishings and established a nonprofit foundation to ensure the preservation of the site. But as I remembered my short walk from the bus that dropped us off past the makeshift tavern that they've built on the property in case you want to sip a mint julep while you meander past the slave cabins. Yes, it's weird to me too. Um, 
So slave cabins I walked past next, which are a self-guided tour filled with information about the slave trade, its connection to the Roman family who started the plantation in 1839, and artifacts that depict its gruesome mark on Louisiana, something felt just a bit off. Now, as a historian... I understand that this site is doing the best it can to make sure that it pays its due to the real history of Oak Alley, but there's something about being led through a lavish, refurbished mansion by a young woman of color, dressed as a southern belle, that just felt weird and a tad bit wrong, maybe a bit insensitive. Now hear me out, as I said before, the site is doing its best with what they have available to them, but to me... It sort of felt like the slave cabins are very much an afterthought, and if you're someone like me who purchased a tour package with two plantation stops and you have to just walk through them by yourself while all the flair is left for the mansion, you can definitely see the unevenness of of mission there um, for me personally. So maybe it was because I had just come from a place that did a fantastic job with their property while talking about enslaved people that I was very, very aware of the contrast between the two tour setups. Um, But on that note, the people who work there are very knowledgeable. The displays in the self-guided portion were incredibly thorough, and our tour guide of the big house was gracious. She was funny. She had a lot of cheekiness that I greatly appreciated. Um, She was really funny. And she knew her stuff about the house and the family. Uh, The house was begun by Jacques Telesfor Roman in 1837 after he purchased the land from his brother-in-law, Valcour Amy. The mansion was completed in 1839. Jacques Roman died in 1848 of tuberculosis, and then the estate passed to his wife, Marie-Therese Josephine Selina Pillier Roman. Um, but they referred to her as Selina. So Selina didn't have a skill for managing a sugar plantation, and her heavy spending nearly bankrupted the estate. In 1859, her son Henri took control of the plantation in a desperate attempt to save it. The plantation wasn't damaged physically during the Civil War, but the economic upsets and downfalls of the war and the end of slavery made it no longer economically viable. Henri became severely in debt, mainly to his family, and in 1866, his uncle Valcour Amy and his sisters, Octavie and Louise, put the plantation up for auction, and it was sold for $32,800 to a man named John Armstrong. Successive owners after John Armstrong couldn't keep up with the cost of repairs, the upkeep for a house that big, and the grounds. It fell into disrepair. And in 1925, Andrew Stewart purchased the home as a gift for his wife, and Josephine hired people, Josephine Stewart, to refurbish and restore the house. The Stewarts ran it as a cattle ranch until the 1960s when they, were re- when they reintroduced sugarcane back onto the property. They were the last owners to live in the house and lived there until Josephine died in the home in 1972 and left the house and grounds to the Oak Alley Foundation. One of the rooms in the house is set up to reflect a period of mourning in the 19th century. The house is, every room sort of has a different theme and is dedicated to a different member of the families that stayed there, which I actually thought was really brilliant. It's a brilliant way to set up a house, um, especially a historic home. Um, and it depicts how a family would have decorated the home during the morning period, this particular morning room that I came upon. So this, of course, was my favorite part of the exhibit because death and mourning practice and material culture surrounding death are what I most like to discuss, as you all know. Uh, the mirrors in bed were covered with black crepe hangings, as were the curtains. 
antebellum Louisianians mourned the dead by staging elaborate funerals and processions and decorating the graves at the time of death on All Saints Day and All Souls Day by placing black wreaths on doors, black ribbons on door pulls, wearing clothes and jewelry that symbolized stages of mourning. And most of these things were depicted in Oak Alley's mourning room. There was mourning clothing and jewelry laid out. Um, there were the pools on the doors. There were the curtains. The bed was draped in crepe. Um, the mirrors were covered. So it was really lovely. Uh, Jacques Ramon did die in the house in 1848, and his wife Selina lived there until her death in 1866. Mourning in the 19th century is interesting, especially in the antebellum Southern culture, but that is in an entirely different episode, so stay tuned because that will happen, but I do not have room for it in this episode. It needs to be its own episode, um, but not to worry. I will get there with you. Um, but when we think of the decadent gothic mourning culture of the Victorian period were reminded of images of gothic horror, stories of haunting, and Oak Alley, as it turns out, has several of its own spectral visitors. According to the folks at the New Orleans Plantation Country, which is a tourism company, Oak Alley is one of two plantations that were exclusively investigated by the International Society for Paranormal Research, which is led by a renowned field parapsychologist, Dr. Larry Montz. And the ISPR team investigated both Oak Alley and the San Francisco plantations. The New Orleans plantation country did put an account of multiple investigations and reported activities at Oak Alley, um, which states that the ISPR first conducted an investigation of the hauntings at Oak Alley plantation in 1983. In 2003, they returned with a more sophisticated team of investigators, including professional clairvoyance and state-of-the-art thermal imaging cameras. During the investigation, Dr. Mons's team did observe several entities. Among them, they encountered the ghosts of some Confederate soldiers who were standing out in front of the property at the time. The plantation spirits also include a six-year-old boy, a young girl around 14 years old, and several of the original women who ran the house and owned it. In addition, the Oak Alley staff has experienced poltergeist phenomena. So according to one of the plantation's guides, one tour group watched as a candle in the mansion's dining room was thrown several feet across the room. So if you want to read more about some hauntings and other plantations that are supported by the company, you can visit their website at neworleansplantationcountry.com. I did not encounter Selena or Josephine when I was on my tour, but according to many, some of the ladies of the house are still trying to oversee its day-to-day -day operations. Back in the French Quarter, uh, my days were filled with sights and sounds of the city after my jaunt out to the countryside where the darkness of Louisiana's history waits for those willing to pull themselves away from the culture of the quarter. But the dark corners of this city are everywhere. During the day, I was able to stroll down to Frenchman Street, take in the art and antique galleries of Chartres and Royal Street, head back to the LaRouche at night when sleep was inevitable, but still you are reminded as you walk the Esplanade that an auction site where Solomon Northrop was sold and was the scene that used to occupy the rows of charming homes and greenery that now make up the avenue. The day is beautiful, the colors of New Orleans are unforgettable, but of course my strange self wants the dark history. I want to know the uncomfortable parts of New Orleans and tell them to the world, because without acknowledging the darkest parts of ourselves and our history, we aren't really remembering. I can sit here and give you all the flowery language that I love when I talk about history, as you can tell, but I need to be honest, I was also in New Orleans to drink. It would be a bold-faced lie of the century if I left that part of it out, but I still wanted to talk to a real New Orleans historian about some of the spooky shit. So uh, Scott and I compromised. We decided to take a haunted pub crawl tour with Ghost City Tours. 
What better way to bond with the locals than stopping for drinks, I guess. Uh, I have to be honest, I was a bit skeptical as although I'm a tour guide for my day job, I also didn't want to be stuck on a tour with a bunch of drunk people. <laughs> I know how that is. It can be overwhelming. It's distracting to the tour guide. And personally, I was hoping that my antisocial self could hack this kind of environment. Um, as you can tell, as I'm sitting here with my little recording device in my apartment with my cats, <laughs> um, that is something that's... N- fun for me, but in small doses. Um, but I was actually really pleasantly surprised. Uh, so it ended up only being myself, Scott, two brothers who were on vacation together who were really awesome. Um, and they were as into the history as we were and really fun to take the tour with. And our tour guide was John Sestak, who is a local historian and tour guide, obviously. Uh, he was absolutely fantastic. So John or Ghost City Tours, if you ever hear this, we had a fantastic time. I am very grateful for all of your knowledge, John, um, you made it fun. Uh, if you're going to take a tour with Ghost City Tours, do yourself a favor, take it with John. He is the perfect mix of funny sarcasm and no bullshit, which is what I, as a fellow tour guide and historian, greatly appreciated. As he said, he doesn't like to tell stories that are BS because there's already enough that is real and that is scary and that is interesting. So Ghost City, if you're listening, don't ever get rid of John because he's amazing. Uh, John also has his own website and told me that he eventually means to start his own history blog. So you can check him out and track it. I hope to see the blog soon. It's John, J-O-H-N, stack, S-T-A-K dot com slash New Orleans. So fun fact, as I found out, he's also a musician. Uh, So I hope that he does start up his blog because he would be an awesome New Orleans resource. Um, He knew a ton of information, clearly knows his stuff, clearly cares about it. Um, So I do hope he gets that blog started up soon. Anyway, we met with John and company at the first stop on the tour, which is called as it's spelled, Tujagoos on Decatur Street. It's actually pronounced by locals as Two Jacks, despite its spelling. Um, so Two Jacks is a traditional stand-up bar that was started in 1856. While we were waiting, I decided to peruse the walls of the bar, and I found an article from the New Orleans Advocate from 2016 that was written about Tujagoos for, or Two Jacks, sorry, uh, for its 160th anniversary. So it talked about a cookbook they released and that they were inducted into the National Culinary Heritage Register. So this is a place that has been around for a very long time. The only restaurant older than Two Jacks is Antoine's, which opened in 1840, where its original location was, but it moved to its current location on St. Louis Street in 1868. So Two Jacks, you could definitely contend that it's not the original building and and try and, like, unseat them because it's a different building. I mean, yours is too, but, you know, we'll get to that later. Uh, The reporter who wrote the article on the wall called Two Jacks America's Oldest Neighborhood Restaurant, and it would seem for good reason. I went to Two Jacks' website for a brief history, which you can find there, but I'll just give some highlights. So the restaurant was started by Guillaume and Marie Abadie Tujagou, who opened Two Jacks in 1856 after immigrating to America from Bordeaux, France in 1852. Guillaume became a butcher in the French market for three years before they established Two Jacks' restaurant in 1856. They began by serving breakfast and lunch to dock workers, market laborers, and seamen who crowded that part of the riverfront. And the South was still recovering from the Civil War at this time, but Two Jacks never missed serving a meal. So that is uh, what they wrote about Guillaume. So sometime before Guillaume died in 1912, he sold the restaurant to a man named Philibert Goucher. And the Goucher family retained business ownership of Two Jacks until 1982 when a New Orleans businessman named Steve Ladder took it over. Now, there was a restaurant 
that was called Begu's. And for a long time, apparently, they were sort of rival restaurants. And at one point, um, I believe it was Goucher, he sort of um, merged with Begu's, and then they moved Two Jacks to the building that was Begu's. So when Steve... Stephen Ladder took it over. He bought the building that was uh, the what used to be Begu's, just to clarify for later. Uh, so Ladder has painstakingly researched the restaurant's history and restored it to its early state. In the dining room and the connecting saloon with a bar brought from France in 1856. So he actually brought a stand-up bar from France from 1856 um, back to the building so that it could be a, sort of an original-looking bar. He's also covered the walls with photos, clippings, other memorabilia relating to the history, as was that article that I was reading. And it became a local institution. Um, but New Orleans, apparently, according to Two Jack's website, could never keep a good thing to herself. So the pleasures of the restaurant were shared with very famous people. Presidents Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower, Francis de Gaulle, have enjoyed Two Jack's hospitality. The guest book includes notables such as Cole Porter, O. Henry, Diane Sawyer, Don Johnson, Harrison Ford, Margot Kidder, Dan Aykroyd, Ty Cobb, John D. Rockefeller, and other well-known personalities whose claim to distinction rests simply and appropriately on their appreciation of fine food. I get you guys. I am the same way. Another guest of Two Jacks when it was Begues was a man named Julian Eltinge. Julian was a close friend of Rudolph Valentino, and I know that several of my listeners probably have a bit of an obsession with Rudy Valentino, especially if you are sort of a old-time silent movie fan and gothic noir sort of fan. You'd love Rudolph Valentino. Um, so Julian was his co-star in the silent film The Isle of Love. He was a frequent diner at Begu's, which became Two Jacks, and even gave Madame Begu an autographed picture, which had been hanging in the restaurant since 1917. In 2013, Mark Ladder made some renovations to the site, and he took down the picture. A young couple from West Virginia were visiting the restaurant in 2014, and they decided to take a selfie. In the background, there is a white, transparent figure. They showed it to someone who worked at Two Jacks, who was shocked to find that the image resembled the image of Julian Eltinge that used to hang in the restaurant. So Ladder made the decision after the photo to hang the picture back in the restaurant, and since that time, Julian's ghost has not been seen. I will definitely post pictures of this in the episode um, blog on the website so that you can see them on lifeaftermidnightsalem.com. And let me tell you, it's pretty convincing. Um, I myself am, am convinced 100% that the cross-dressing ghost of Julian L. Tinge is in that couple's photo. There's still rumored to be activity on the second floor linked to the building's original odor, but, or owner, excuse me. But as far as we know, Julian has not made an appearance again. So clearly he just wanted his picture to be hung back in the restaurant. Our next stop is uh, a familiar place to me, but one whose history with haunting I really had no idea about, given the nature of the theme of the bar. And it is Tony Seville's Pirate Bar. And the Pirate Bar is located in Pirate's Alley, which is located between St. Louis Cathedral, the oldest continuously operating church in the country, and the Cabildo Building, the former center of government where the Louisiana Purchase was signed. So if you know those buildings, they're in Jackson Square. Pirate's Alley is the little alleyway that is in between those two buildings. Uh, the bar claims that the alley is known to have been a meeting place for pirates and scallywags, as well as for men of means who sought their services. And they also claim that locals purchased black market merchandise, which was displayed along the church fence, giving rise to the expression, fencing stolen goods. 
I don't know about all that, but they are right next to the formal home of William Faulkner, which is awesome. They are also near a famous lamppost at the intersection with Cabildo Alley. So if you stand beneath beneath this particular lamppost, you are in the closest proximity between church, state, and bar in the entire world. In fact, they actually almost lost their liquor license because of their proximity near the city. But there was a huge email campaign, apparently, to stop that because it was such a beloved bar. And luckily, the Archdiocese of New Orleans um, allowed them to stay. So they actually almost lost their license because of their proximity to the church. Uh, The bar building itself stands on the site of where the old calabozo or prison used to sit that was on the back of the cabildo. That prison was demolished in 1837 to make room for the buildings that now sit where Pirate's Alley Bar is. Those buildings were built in the 1840s. Now, executions never took place in the Calabozo, but they did take place at the Place de Arms, which is now Jackson Square, which used to be the courtyard of the Cabildo. And as you can imagine, there are rumored to be all kinds of spirits sticking around in that area. I mentioned earlier that William Faulkner's house is right next door to the Pirate Bar. And he has frequently been seen... um, Sticking around, there's a bookstore that now occupies the bottom floor, but his desk is still in the building, and he is sometimes seen to be sitting at his desk. Uh, People have even claimed in the former home of William Faulkner to smell his pipe smoke because he used to smoke a pipe when he was writing. Another name that I already mentioned earlier that's associated with Pirate's Alley is Jean Lafitte. Apparently, when he was negotiating with Andrew Jackson for his brother's release from the Calabozo shortly before the Battle of New Orleans. That negotiation took place in Pirate's Alley, according to local legend. Um, And local legend also holds that the alley itself was an operating point for Jean Lafitte. So while it is possible that this meeting occurred, it isn't plausible that Lafitte would have held a meeting so close to the prison, the seat of government, the execution grounds, and the church. Um, I don't think that he was that dumb of an individual. So, um... There's no documentation of it, but it is a funny little charming local legend, but that's probably what it is, just a charming local legend. The ghosts said to walk the alley are including of a priest, what is said to be a pirate, and many others, but they were not first seen or heard of by ghost tour guides. There are even stories told by prisoners who were in the jail at one point, stretching back to the 18th and 19th century. Apparently, in a record found written by the warden of the prison who believed that one of the cells was haunted by a girl who hanged herself, um, he has an account that shortly after a boy was thrown into a cell, he told the guards that he saw a girl hanging in the cell that she turned around and screamed at him before disappearing, and this boy was apparently in hysterics. So this could have been just a story told by a boy trying to get out of jail, uh, but it was scary enough that it actually was recorded by the warden. So even the people that ran that former prison were seeing ghosts long before people that are walking around drunk in New Orleans were. Well, or maybe not long before. I think people were always walking around drunk in New Orleans, but that's besides the point. Uh there were other stops on the tour, including Lafitte's, which I already talked about, the site of Marie Laveau's home, which, again, is a whole other episode. Uh, Marie definitely deserves her own episode for many, 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 many reasons. And if I ever do that episode, I will be having my friend um, Joseph Alexander Robicho joining me on that episode because I could not see doing that episode without him. So, uh, Demetrius, if you're listening, I will do that Marie Laveau episode with you and you alone. 
Um, the pub crawl was fun and it proved my suspicion that even when you are just going out for a drink or a bite to eat in New Orleans, you're constantly surrounded by those that you cannot see. Uh, which leads me finally to the place that I was sleeping the entire time, the La Rucheleau Hotel on Chartres Street, just down the lane from the Ursuline Nun Convent. Uh, the, the hotel is named for Armand Jean de Plessis, the Duke and Cardinal de Rucheleau, powerful prime minister of Louis XIII, and the man credited with France's greatness in the 17th century. Um, talking with people who run the hotel about the podcast, they were gracious enough to point me in the right direction for the history of the building. Um, they have a portrait of Cardinal Rucheleau in the lobby of the hotel. Uh, the land that the hotel was built on, however, was part of a 1745 royal land grant from Louis XV of France to the Sisters of St. Ursula, also known as the Ursuline Nuns, who still have a present in, presence in New Orleans to this day. Under the land grant, the king mandated that they care for sick French soldiers and establish a school for young ladies. A caserne, or lodging, and a hospital were built on the location where the hotel now sits and housed French, Spanish, and American soldiers for over a hundred years. The school I was talking about is the Ursuline Nun Convent, which is just up the street. If you remember from a previous episode where I debunked a vampire story from New Orleans, it had to do with the Ursuline Nun Convent. And I'm sorry to say still, no vampires, just nuns um, and a museum now. The nuns have moved out. Anyway, um, back to the soldiers causing a bunch of problems. In 1763, when Louis XV secretly gave up Louisiana to Charles III of Spain because France was broke, French subjects in New Orleans um, did what they eventually do best in France. Irony. They rebelled. Uh, they managed to force out the first French governor, Antonio de Lua, but in response, uh, Spain sent Count Alexander O'Reilly and 3,000 soldiers to quell the rebellion in 1769. As you can tell, that didn't end well for anyone. O'Reilly arrested the leader of the rebellion, Nicolas Chauvin de la Frenière, who was also the attorney general of the colony. And in the courtyard of the barracks, where the parking lot of the La Rucheleau now sits, O'Reilly had Lafreniere and his four compatriots executed by firing squad, earning him the nickname Bloody O'Reilly. In 1824, when the Ursuline nuns moved, the land that was part of the original land grant was sold to the citizens. John McDonough, a land baron and native of Baltimore, Maryland, purchased the La Rucheleau property in 1828. He was known for being a miser, which was frowned upon by the very wealthy, genteel, Creole class in New Orleans, and he was even known for having a slave he owned row him from his plantation in Algiers to the city across the Mississippi just to avoid paying the ferry fare, according to gossipy New Orleanians, and there is a painting depicting that rumor um, in the lobby as well. They probably felt like crap, though, when they found out upon his death in 1850 that he left his land to the cities of New Orleans and Baltimore for educational purposes. Ouch. New Orleans used that share to establish its public school system and erected 36 school buildings with the funds, all named for John McDonough. In 1845, a man named Dominique Lanada had built five identical houses in a row facing Chartres Street for his family on that property. Um, they changed hands many, many times until 1963. Sam Raciel, a local entrepreneur, bought and restored one of the buildings, which now houses the lobby and bar of the Liverschlu, and has three suites on the second floor, which were used by Paul McCartney and his family for two and a half months at one point. Um, the part of the building that now houses most of the rooms was previously a macaroon 
Macaroni Factory, which was built in 1902, burned down in 1916. New Orleans has a lot of fires and rebuilt in 1917. The Cusimano family ran it until 1939 when it was sold and converted into a furniture factory. It then stood idle for many years at one point and until 1963 when Sam Rasil purchased it along with the main house that holds the lobby and bar. It became the LaRouchelieu Apartment Hotel. The property was sold in 1969 to two New Orleanians, Frank Rochefort Jr. and Gerald Center, and after renovation began operating as the hotel that I stayed in. And boy, how is that place definitely haunted. So I just told you a brief history of the hotel. There are many, many things reported to happen in the hotel, but I will tell you what happened to us. So when you walk in, I can understand why it's called the Apartment Hotel. It is a a room with big walk-in closets. There is a micro kitchen in a closet, which is really interesting. It was this sort of little micro stove, microwave, oven, fridge setup that closes into a closet, which is really cool. And then it definitely had like an old 60s style retro bathroom, like blue tile, um, really bright fluorescent light, but I kind of loved it. It was clean. You know, that's all you can ask for. It was very, very clean. Um, according to me there, uh, you know, I'm sure there are other people that maybe have had experiences, but our room was very, very clean and very nice. Um, and the first night we were kind of just sitting there and we heard a doorknob and didn't really think anything of it. And then we all of a sudden heard the, um, the toilet running, but no one had flushed the toilet. Like no one had touched the toilet. There was no reason for the toilet to be running. And we flickered the handle. We did all kinds of stuff. Nothing happened. It kept running, it kept running. And then all of a sudden it just stopped like out of nowhere. So it was kind of weird because there was just, no one had touched the toilet. Like the toilet had not been flushed and it just started run. It was, it was as if the toilet had been flushed. And I know this is weird, like to talk about my toilet, But I'm telling you, it was one of those things where when you flush the toilet, it either runs or it doesn't. No one flushed the toilet, but it sounded like something was going on. So again, that could have just been weird plumbing. So we just brushed it off. Until one day uh, we were on the fourth floor. I came out of the room and out of the corner of my eye, I kid you not, I saw a black figure. I mean, it looked like it was a person standing over by the window. So when you walked out of our room, you look to the left, there's a bill, a, a window and a plant. And it looked like someone was standing there. Like there was nowhere to go. I would have heard or seen a door open or close. You could hear everything in that hallway. There was nobody there. And then as soon as I turned to look and say hello, no one there. And I, I'm telling you guys, I was a paranormal investigator for, for two years with MGHPS. Um, I know the difference between seeing something in your eyes, playing tricks on you and seeing something in broad daylight, which is what it was. There were no shadows at play here. There were no weird lights. It was broad day sunlight. And I saw someone. Um, so I went downstairs, I talked to the ladies at the front desk And um, I said to them, well, has anyone ever seen anything? And they said, oh, yeah, people see that's usually what happens is you will see someone out of the corner of your eye uh, sort of standing on the property. So I did have my very own paranormal experience at that hotel, not even trying to. I was trying to leave for the day to go on my paddle boat ride. Uh, So I talked to them a little bit more about some of the hauntings. People have seen children nearby. Um, They don't know if that's connected to the property where the nun convent was. 
or what because that operated an orphanage and maybe because it's such close proximity some of that energy jumps over into the LaRouche Hotel buildings there are soldiers that are frequently seen um I have heard that sometimes people see things in the pool or the courtyard area back by the parking lot um and those are the types of hauntings that apparently take place at the LaRouche Hotel so I didn't have anything super eventful but I did see one of the left behind residents, it would seem, of the LaRouche Hotel while I was staying there. Well, that is all I have for you today on my whirlwind trip to New Orleans and some of my favorite haunts there. This is kind of a variety episode. Usually my episodes have a little bit more of a focus to them, but I just wanted to share you some of the travels that I've done and the research that I've done for you all and share with you one of my favorite places in the world, even though it is a very limited share. I know there are many other places you'd love to hear about and legends you'd love to hear about. The LaLaurie Mansion, of course, that's a whole other episode. And trust me, those things are coming as fast as my little fingers can write for you. Um, On that note, look out for the next episode, uh, which I will be discussing uh, some interesting fashion choices in history. So if you are someone that is into weird fashion, you may appreciate that episode. I do thank you all for joining me. This episode will be on the website lifeaftermidnightsalem.com and it will also be on the iTunes podcast app as soon as that feed catches up for you. Thank you all so much for your patience and waiting for this episode. I appreciate every single goddamn one of you. Stay spooky, everyone. Uh, As always, if you have any suggestions or topics you would like to talk about or any comments or questions about the episode, please feel free to reach out on the Facebook page or send me a message on lifeaftermidnightsalem.com. I am signing off for the evening. As always, have a strange life.